So, welcome back everybody to Brubble, a podcast collecting young voices and perspectives from around Europe to explore all the policy undercurrents in this beautiful city of ours. I'm your host, Simon, and today we're going to be talking about energy. So last year, one issue that was fueling dialogue all around Europe, like no other, was energy. In the wake of the Russian war of aggression in Ukraine, Europe was exposed to potential energy crisis that arguably had been slowly building up the background for years. And today we're sitting here in Brussels, nicely heated and warm. A situation that has generated more questions than answers. So did Europe pull together to avoid an energy crisis? What lessons has last year taught Europe about our energy situation? How will we take these lessons into 2023? And what new challenges will emerge? So helping me open the pipes of knowledge, I hope you're enjoying my uh, heavy use of uh, energy metaphors here, is Connell and Giovanni. How are you guys doing today? All good, thank you, Simon. Good, glad to be here. Yeah, I think I'll introduce you guys first, and then I'll get into my small talk as I normally do, because I feel like sometimes when you drag on to a bit of the small talk, you forget the people, and that's what this is all about. So, Connell, who are you? Tell, tell us what you do here in this beautiful city. Sure. So my name is Connell Hossaf. I'm a research assistant at Bruegel, a think tank based here in Brussels. I've been here since July of 2022, so moved uh, in the midst of the energy crisis. Before that, I was working in the Irish energy regulator on wholesale electricity markets. And previous to that, I did a master's in Bern in Switzerland on climate science, bit of energy economics. And previous to that, I did a bit of physics. So I've kind of had a, 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 a bit of a, an arc uh, through various fields to end up on energy policy, but arrived at a, at a very busy time. I will say it's funny that being an, an energy expert, you landmark, you're moving to a city by the energy crisis, which I have not heard anybody refer to that milestone in European history. So I, I, mean, I trust we're in expertise here. We have great expertise. Giovanni, talking about great expertise, tell us about yourself. Thank you, Simon. Um, so I've been working at Bruegel for one year and a half now. Uh, I arrived in September uh, 2021, and uh, mostly covered the um, energy security of supply but also the, the fiscal aspect of the energy crisis, so what governments have been doing uh, to shield consumers from, uh, from the spiking uh, prices. Um, before I was at the Office for National Statistics in the UK, covering productivity, and before that I was in Chile, uh, in Santiago de Chile, um, at the EU delegation uh, to Chile, in the trade department, trade and economics department. I have a background in economics, and uh, yeah, uh, I would say that's pretty much it. Yeah. Given the energy crisis that's been going on, has the last year been like unprecedentedly busy for you energy scholars or energy researchers? Or is this normally how busy you are? Or is this just the public knowing about it? Has this changed anything? Well, for me, absolutely. Uh, when I first arrived in Brussels at Bruegel, uh, I was supposed to work uh, on the green transition. Uh, and then uh, Russia started to play with the supply of gas. Uh, so I was, uh, you know, diverted to energy security. Um, and I've been working in the field uh, since then. Yeah. For me, I, my previous job started before uh, the energy crisis and Ru Russia's manipulation of, of gas, its geopolitical manipulation, I suppose you could say. And before then, I mean, things were busy, as they are in, in energy, any job working on, on something like energy, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the scale of urgency and the sort of quick turnaround that every piece of work has to have at the moment. And I think with, with our other colleagues in Bruegel, they, they talk about last year being, you know, one of the craziest, busiest times in their career so it, it's definitely uh, extraordinary times i remember when we did our like year-end ranking here of like 
topics a, a few a month ago or so here here for this podcast. Energy, I think, was our second most important topic for 2022, which I thought was well-deserved, but also almost surprising. Do you think it will retain that place going to 2023? I don't want to spoil all the podcasts <laughs> coming ahead, but just to give a glimpse to the viewers. Well, I can talk about, uh, you know, Bruegel's yeah. uh, experience, uh, and I think um, uh, for Bruegel, probably it will be still one of the most important topics uh, going forward. Um for sure, it was. It has been the, the first one of the list uh, last year. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to be the first also in 2023, but surely uh, among the top three, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Let's take a look backwards then, because the way I want to kind of structure this podcast, I want to start looking at what happened in 2022 and then looking, taking a good deep glance at what really the issues were and how did we deal with it as Europe and then take a few lessons and then look at those lessons, apply them forwards, think of 2023 and think of what the challenges may be going forward from there. So I think with that mission in mind, let's look at 2022. Do you think we can get a brief synopsis of what really happened in 2022? What made your lives so unbearably, I don't want to want to say miserable. I mean, we kept <laughs> warm throughout, but uh, busy. <laughs> Not that none of us are here in the city. Yeah, maybe I can kick off, uh, Connor. Um, so as I was saying, uh, uh, actually everything started to happen even before 2022. Uh, when I joined Bruegel, it was September 2021, and already uh, gas prices started to, to go up. Um, Gazprom started to decrease the volumes uh, of supply of natural gas uh, to, to Europe, uh, and there was uh, a lot of you know, um, agitation of um, fuss about uh, what's going to happen, uh, what is Russia doing, why it's uh, behaving like that, this is not market behavior. Uh, and so I think uh, the first thing we learned from 2022 is uh, how much we relied on, on Russia for fossil fuels. Um, yeah, I would say that very first point uh, of the list for me. Yeah, and then, I mean, uh, as Giovanni said, you could see some some manipulations occurring way before 2022, uh, as far back probably as summer 2021. Uh, but uh, after the invasion, of course, things things really came into focus vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Russia started turning down the supply, the, the supply was constrained, prices started going up, so... Yeah, from from uh, early 2022 onwards, it was it was a completely different energy situation, energy security situation in, in Europe in terms of you know its main supplier of of, of gas uh, became completely unreliable. I mean, maybe this speaks to my lack of proper scripting for this episode, but you all speak to the the, the hallmarks of its energy crisis originating way further back in 2022. Do you think this crisis was almost avoidable in that sense, or were we gearing up for this crisis to happen? Was it inevitable? I think that's the word I want to use instead. Were we always going to reach this moment of decoupling from Russia and causing this momentum in the, in the European market? Or was this something that we could have avoided, if not for the Russian war aggression in Ukraine? Yeah, no, definitely the second option. Uh, there were already signals in 2006 uh, of, you know, uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, not being very uh, aligned on uh, the sim simple market rules of, you know, gas transfers uh, through Ukraine. And then there were further, much more clear uh, signals uh, in 2014 with, you know, uh, Russia in basically invading. Uh, Crimea. So I think uh, uh, the signals were all there and uh, uh, building uh, 
more infrastructure than the one that was already in place and then thinking at Nord Stream 2 uh, was probably uh, a mistake uh, with, with insight, yeah. Okay, as, as Giovanni says, I mean, now it's clear looking back that becoming strategically dependent on Russia for your energy needs was a, a, a huge mistake, seems obvious to say now. Um, but also not even the, the, the gas dependency, but our, our energy transition, which is really accelerating now in response to the crisis in Europe, but had also been taking pace, uh, increasing its pace before the, the crisis. If, if we had have pushed things through a decade earlier, you know, started those, those important investments, started decarbonizing, uh, we'd be far less dependent on Russian fossil fuels, gas and oil. Uh, in general, and be more resilient to, to the sort of shocks we suffered last year. Uh, very interesting. And my my thought for all of last year was energy crisis. It's super severe. It's going to impact us all in the winter. Yet here I'm sitting, as I mentioned two or three times, warm and heated. And as we were progressing towards, I mean, I think that even in the September State of Union address by Wonder Lane, she was already boasting that we had filled up all our gas reserves or I think 80% or 6% at that time. And by the time winter rolled around, it was, I think, 80%, 90% filled up. We were doing quite well, actually. It was really a point of pride for the commission and all the people from around it. Do you share that optimism? Did we really, you know, solve it for 2022, or was it just a Band-Aid solution? I think the markets did their job uh, in both gas and power in, in 2022 in terms of not only the markets, uh, you know, a, l- a lot of work from the Commission and Repair EU and so on, uh, but they did a good job of, of coordinating you know, the supply of scarce resources basically throughout Europe to the point where we never had to ration gas, which was the big fear. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, People would have the, 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 the gas to their homes turned off and you'd have to decide which consumers uh, get better priority and so on. We, we, we never reached that point. Uh, but Giovanni, you might want to add, you know, that perhaps some of the reason we're we're sitting so warmly is because the response to the crisis has has weakened a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And now the situation looks uh, better than just uh, six months ago. Uh, we have a lot of LNG infrastructure coming online. I'm thinking at this uh, floating storage and regasification units, the FSRUs. Uh, there are two that became operative in Germany, another one, uh, actually uh, another two uh, in the Netherlands. Um, so the situation uh, is uh, easing uh, uh, quite considerably. Um, there are new gas deals uh, agreements uh, signed off between European countries and the United States uh, or Northern Africa um, that help uh, is the situation. However, I'm also seeing some feeling of complacency uh, that we did a great job and now we can relax, which is not really the case. Uh, we still need um, around 15% of gas demand reduction uh, and possibly even more if uh, Russia completely stops uh, the flows uh, towards Europe uh, and if we have a, a cold winter uh, in 2023-2024. So we cannot really just clap to, to ourselves and say, okay, we did it, but we still need this uh, consistent gas demand reduction, which has been great during the autumn and in the first months of, of winter, but now we are seeing uh, some easing of, of the efforts, um, which which is kind of worrisome. Uh, so I think uh, there is reason for cautious optimism. Yes, uh, maybe to add a few other points on, on what we did do well and maybe why the optimism is there. I mean, uh, a point that is probably undermade about the, the benefits of the, the markets, especially on the electricity side, was, uh, well, we speak about the energy crisis being a gas supply crisis, but th- that isn't the only crisis that happened last year. We also had a, 
uh, a serious undersupply of, 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 of electricity in terms of uh, France's nuclear capacity. It's, half of its fleet went offline effectively, and we had a drought which reduced the, the availability of, of hydropower capacity. So uh, Europe's electricity generation capacity was, was really much lower than it's been in, in a long time. And the markets, the electricity markets, managed to coordinate the, the supply of electricity you know, and, and the flows of electricity between member states. And the main beneficiary of that was France who historically had been a huge exporter of electricity. It, it sent its, its nuclear-generated uh, uh, power to all of its neighbours, and during this crisis it was a, a net importer by a huge margin. So that's an example of, of how the the institutions did their job to a certain extent in, in coordinating um, uh, yeah, the, the, the allocation of resources. And also there was all of the, the protection for consumers and so on. So, you know, wholesale prices went up really, really high, but retail prices didn't increase. They increased by about a, 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 an order of magnitude less. So consumers were shielded uh, to a certain extent, obviously not entirely, but to a, to a great extent from, from the real price increases something that costs a lot of money that Giovanni has been doing a lot of research into. It's, it's got a, a We're going to publish an update uh, next week uh, and we are around uh, 700 billion for the EU alone of subsidies uh, rolled out since September 2021 uh, till now. Uh, so it's a crazy amount of, of money. Uh, just think that, uh, for example, the next generation EU uh, package is worth uh, 800 billion. So we already spent 700 uh, just in subsidies for the energy crisis all the subsidy talk is quite crazy because when we think about i mean with the ira also coming up in this uh, subsidy package we're proposing for that and electricity will have large consequences down the line and i think it'll continue driving energy i guess in the forefront if we have another crisis coming up so before we talk whether there will be another crisis <laughs> let's wrap up this little segment and, and i'm going to ask you know get the giovanni and connell approved how well did europe weather the energy crisis out of 10 10 being the best <laughs> Um, I would give probably a eight. Yeah. That's optimistic. Seven and a half, eight. Yeah, I would have said seven, seven and a half, somewhere in that range. Good, yeah. but yeah, yeah. Cautiously optimistic is the, the appropriate uh, disposition, I think. Room for improvement, perhaps? Uh, potentially room for improvement, yes, or at least ensuring uh, the com- complacency doesn't sneak in. Fair enough. Also, yeah, if we talk about room of improvement, uh, um, like there weren't a lot of uh, emergency gas uh, deals uh, agreements bilaterally uh, between countries, um, which actually helped a lot, you know, during the crisis. So uh, there were only six or seven agreed uh, in place, which, you know, could have been more. Uh, There could have been... uh, more solidarity, there could have been more coordination uh, among member states also in rolling out uh, subsidies. Uh, We have seen every government uh, uh, deciding on their own uh, what type of uh, measure to adopt. Um, And this doesn't help the level playing field of of, of firms, right? Because if uh, someone has uh, more fiscal power and more room to help their own uh, businesses in some sectors, uh, then, of course, uh, the single market could be in danger. Um, So... Overall, I, 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 ta- like, I think uh, my vote uh, on one out of ten uh, is still valid, seven and a half slash eight. Uh, but 
of course there could have been um, uh, you know something else uh, uh, on the improvement side yeah room for improvement was there for sure yeah and i think especially to contrast these scores i feel like when the rumors of energy crisis started in i think like march or april of 2023 or 2022 sorry yeah. we would have all gave it like oh europe would get probably a five out of ten at this point in time so yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's yeah, no, true. And maybe to to add, you know, the 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 seven is there was no rationing of supply. You know, yeah. we we didn't have to go to that level. Uh, that would have been a disaster, and that was avoided. But the the room for improvement, as Giovanni says, that missing uh, three. Also, you know, a lot of policy the, the policy approaches were not coherent. So you had you know a need for demand reduction. We we have a gas supply crisis, and we need to use less of it. Uh, at the and the same for electricity. At the same time, let's you know suppress the prices uh, of these commodities, which of course you know has the consequence that that consumers you know have less of an incentive to reduce their their usage if if they don't feel the price effects. That's not to say that that people should should freeze in their homes or businesses should be should be closed down, right? But it is to say that that you do need to seek demand response and you need to maintain the price signal to do that. So there was a bit of incoherence in the in the policy approach for for a long time. I think. It, Towards the end of the year, things started to sort of settle down and we were able to, to sort of see what the new normal is to a certain extent or the temporary normal and, and go from there. But there were many months spending debating policies that, that weren't all aligned in the approach. Yeah, and I think the most effective policy we saw emerge was uh, causing all the commission employees to freeze in their buildings, which <laughs> I've heard to no extent. Well, 2023, new year, new times, new optimism perhaps for the energy markets? For me, yes, um, absolutely, because, again, we put uh, some infrastructure there uh, to help fill in the gap with, uh, with Russia. Um, we have also the gas deal, uh, you know, the, the agreements are there. Um, we have seen that the internal market works uh, both for electricity and, and gas. There was a reshuffling of uh, gas supply, gas flows all around uh, Europe, which helped a lot. Um, however... We don't know, we're not sure that uh, the whole uh, nuclear fleet of, of, of France will go back online for how long. Uh, we are not sure that, uh, you know, droughts will not uh, present themselves again in summer. It, it didn't snow a lot this winter, so that, you know, looks uh, like uh, a quite warning, uh, uh, worry, worrying signal. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would say... Ups and downs, pros and cons. Uh, again, cautious optimism. <laughs> a lot of say. uncertainty is what I'm getting. Yeah. You, you don't have your crystal ball out. You're not going to yeah. wrap it out for this year, I guess. But, uh, yeah. but, but, Connell, like, so as we move into 2023, do you think there will be different drivers of energy instability uh, throughout the upcoming year? Has anything changed from 2022? Yeah, well, one one big change on the global landscape that that people are flagging is. Uh, is a rebounded demand from China for, for LNG, right? Mm-hmm. So China's economy has really been uh, operating uh, at a very slow pace, let's say, because of extended COVID lockdowns. And, and there's an anticipation that, that that will rebound. And so the LNG cargoes that, that Europe has paid a, a high premium for uh, to, to, to make up the lost supply from Russia may become harder to, 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 to access in the global markets. And so you could see, you know, higher prices again or, or, or at least a struggle to keep securing those those LNG cargoes. That's one sort of global risk. Another is that, you know, there's still a, a war happening um, and the war is not over. And Russia is still supplying some gas to, to, to Eastern Europe. Um, and there was manipulations of, of gas supply has been the main 
characteristic of this crisis and there's you know you'd be foolish to to think that 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 has ended right so you could imagine russia flooding some countries with gas and saying here really cheap gas to you know some eastern european country as a way to try so to sow division between yeah, european member states so of course it's still important to be wary uh, of those um of those issues and the, the other point which is a, a topic that i work pretty closely on is, is electricity market reform Mm-hmm. Um, so this has become a, a central policy agenda. I mean, it's come from the top down. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen spoke about it uh, as far back as I think July last year, as we need to change the electricity markets to a certain extent. Um, and we're expecting a proposal from the Commission sometime in March. And, and this this could be a relatively benign reform, uh, or there's a risk because it's going through at such an accelerated timeline that you know it really damages the the existing institutions and market framework that we have to the point where uh, it's not as effective at coordinating the the flows of supply as we talk about so there's a risk but also a potential upside there if if we if we get a good uh, outcome yeah well said i think that's a good thing to keep an eye on especially as the year progresses and as we see other things move my next question I was going to ask to both of you, perhaps, is uh, what do we expect to happen? Like, are there any big events? Are there any big milestones? I mean, I, I guess none of us would have guessed energy market instability for 2022. But if we were to look down, and you mentioned electricity market reform, I think that's a good thing on the horizon, right? Is there anything else on the horizon we should be aware of that might send shocks through, uh, through Europe, get the front page political articles again of energy crisis, doom and gloom? I hope to see really good news uh, coming up uh, in That's the next month. <laughs> uh, we have seen a lot of uh, renewable uh, energy uh, deployment in Europe uh, right now. The IEA, the International Energy Agency, had to revise upwards uh, their estimates uh, for deployment of renewables in Europe and worldwide, um, which is, is really good, uh, good news. Um, we are tracking at Bruegel uh, solar panel imports uh, from China, and they really skyrocketed after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, we are seeing big tenders uh, uh, on wind power around Europe, like in Portugal, for example. Um, and uh, I think, you know, uh, European policymakers have really taken energy uh, at the core of their agenda uh, because now it's not just uh, a climate change uh, topic, but it's also a... Uh, security yeah. problem, a concern. And therefore, uh, it's, it's really high up on the agenda of, of everyone. I um, think uh, this will uh, push the, the transition. Uh, we have seen Repower EU. Um, there are talks now about uh, how to help uh, industry to decarbonize uh, going forward. So um, I hope to see good uh, uh, headlines in, in uh, newspapers uh, on this side of, of the energy market. Do you think that perhaps the, I mean, currently we're in the midst of the IRA, Green New Plan debate. Do you think that will help, you know, push forward the, the decarbonization, the, 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 the cleaner energy concerns here in Europe? Do you think that will have an impact? Yeah, um, I think so. I think um, we need to be very careful at not uh, entering into a trade war with the U.S. So we don't want to do the same, uh, you know, type of, of policy uh, that they did. We don't want to have local uh, requirements uh, um, into our, you know, subsidy measures. Um, 
However, I think uh, that overall, uh, the IRA really put uh, the light spot on, on the industry, heavy industry, r to abate industries, how to uh, make them greener, how to uh, green up uh, the production processes. And that, that can only be good, right? Then, um, of course, it depends if you look at the short term or at the long term. In the short term, maybe some, uh, you know, developing countries, especially having uh, the bigger, probably, uh, or one of the richest markets uh, cut off from their um, customer base, uh, that that could hurt uh, uh, suppliers in, in, in other countries. Um, however, in the long term, hopefully, all this investment will push down prices of green technology, uh, yeah, green tech uh, especially in the manufacturing sector. Um, and this uh, should help uh, in the long run uh, for uh, accelerating the transition. Any notes as well, Carl? Um, no, I think Giovanni you know, said it very well there. And, and highlighting the, the hard-to-abate sectors, as we call them, is something that, you know, th- that the IRA, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, has has really yeah, put front and centre, you know, manufacturing, heavy industry. How are we going to decarbonise these, these things? I mean... On electricity, the the plan was is fairly straightforward. You know, uh, wind and solar renewables and and the technologies you need to support them. Heat and transport also relatively straightforward. I mean, it's not easy, but at least we have a plan. Uh, heat pumps, EVs, public transport, and so on. Um, but for industry, industrial processes, that, that has always been a huge question mark in the sort of decarbonize the economy uh, uh, action plan. And I think now that it's getting a lot of attention, you know, from policymakers on both sides of the Atlantic, overall for the, the climate agenda is, is a good thing. Yeah. We mentioned nuclear as well several times. And it was, a, I guess, an un, like a, a pressure impacting the energy markets in 2022. Is this also something that will be again into conversation 2023? Because I, I know I didn't include this in our background, but we saw a lot of conversation even on the nuclear question in Germany in 2022, which spurred a lot of even political discourse, which I, I'm sure Schultz really appreciated. So <laughs> any reflections perhaps on the state of nuclear energy for Europe in 2023? Yeah, I mean, so it's clear, as you highlight, I mean, uh, Germany, which had been committed to, to really turning off all of its nuclear power plants, you know, kept some of them open longer than it, it had planned to do. And, and we've seen that in, in other countries and places like Poland, I think, are, are, are now planning to invest in, in nuclear. I think during an energy crisis, during a, a you know, a, a supply crisis of, of electricity, turning off nuclear power plants doesn't seem to make sense. Um, and yes, perhaps they should be on the table as a as a you know a technology to to continue to decarbonize our energy systems. But there's there's a lot of issues with them in terms of the, the timeline that it takes to install uh, a nuclear power plant. Now is is on the order of decades, mm-hmm. and our situation is more urgent than that in terms of decarbonizing the economy and 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 decoupling from from Russian fossil fuels, but fossil fuels in general, because of of yeah climate goals. So. It it's important that I think it's good that nuclear has had this sort of you know has been back in the discussion and it's it's being properly interrogated as a potential solution. Uh, but my personal view is that it's not a panacea for the problems that we have and, and that there's a lot of issues still with with nuclear that are unresolved. Very reasonable European take, I suppose. Yeah, interesting <laughs> points to bring up because it's always when you talk about nuclear, it gets very passionate. I find on yeah, both sides. it's and very polarized. As somebody who grew up in North America, I just don't mm. understand that debate. Yeah. I don't want to stray too. I don't <laughs> want to open that kind of words. I, I, I like I, I, if I can add uh, uh, that there is a bit um, 
of you know competition on the different uh, technologies when it comes to uh, the energy sector in the EU because we don't know what is going to be the next uh, technology, the most important technology defining uh, you know uh, this century really. So it's good that we have countries uh, pushing a lot uh, uh, towards nuclear, investing a lot of money into nuclear and other countries focusing more on solar. I'm um, thinking at Spain, for example, uh, or, or Germany itself, uh, and other countries more into wind. Um, and so, so it's good that we don't, in my opinion at least, uh, we don't have, you know, a Leviathan state deciding, okay, we have to do decarbonization with these technologies full stop but it's up to different governments in different countries to decide where to invest their money well taxpayers money uh, and this uh, should uh, incentivize uh, um, innovation right so I think it's, it's good news at the end yeah I think to wrap up what I was thinking to ask is how do we what lessons do we take from 2022 and apply it to 2023 I guess maybe to revise this bit, what are the biggest themes based on what happened in 2022, which will dominate the conversation this year? I would take one that we've that Giovanni mentioned earlier, which is that uh, energy is a, a security issue as well as a, a environmental issue, if you will. So, of course, decarbonizing our economy is imperative if we're to, to meet our clim- climate goals and, and, and keep the, the climate uh, within a, a sort of safe uh, range. But it also has huge, you know, security issues and 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 broader, well, not broader, but other considerations for the economy. And we've seen, you know, when when our energy is 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 threatened, you know, it, it has knock on effects for for literally every other other part of the economy. So, I think an appreciation of of how central energy is to to our economies is, is something that we can take forward into next year and also just going forward throughout the energy transition. Yeah, I think that's a super important point because it, it involves a lot of different and also powerful actors in the energy conversations who weren't traditionally there. Because I think even NATO was stepping in towards the in 2022 towards the energy debate because of its vitality for, I guess, the treaty, but larger in general. Shivani, <laughs> last subset of point. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, we have jotted down a, a couple here. So I'd say... The internal market uh, really worked and helped a lot to ease the situation. Uh, we haven't witnessed blackouts, and that was mostly thanks to the internal market, both for electricity and natural gas. Um, so be careful uh, not to split the market, uh, not to have countries going on their own way, uh, but keep uh, united, don't uh, close the borders. Um, then uh, I would say... Try to learn the lesson also when it comes for uh, when it comes to subsidies. So try to be cooperative, united, harmonize these subsidies. Um, it's uh, it's probably a point to to take on and and try to implement for this year. And um, yeah, exposure to international commodity markets as inherent risks. But yeah, Connell already already mentioned that one. So I think uh, these three are probably the, the most important uh, uh, points. And with this one, uh, we can also elaborate a, a bit further and say, let's keep up the good work of Repower EU, of the Commission, uh, and implement it uh, at the national level with the fastest, uh, fastest rollout of uh, renewable energy sources and with energy efficiency that we didn't really touch upon in the podcast, but super important as well. 
Yeah, no, definitely. There's always so much room for discussion in these, you know, you know uh, these existential conversations on, on European affairs, I suppose. But no, I, I really appreciate it. It was quite a nice approach, you know, surface level dive into all the broad themes that we'll hopefully we'll see in 2023. And who knows, maybe we'll look back in a year's time and be completely surprised, completely relieved. Who knows? Yes, hopefully we can uh, be sitting here in a year and be giving it a nine and a half out of ten. There we go. On the, uh, <laughs> on the European response. <laughs> Through. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I always like to finish with a, a non-substantive question, which is only marginally related to the topic theme. So more of a fun one, which I didn't prepare you guys on. But uh, So I was going to ask, uh, what food or drink fuels you the most? Because we're talking about fuel, about energy. And this is a different question than what's your favorite food, favorite drink. But if you need a pick-me-up, a really good boost of energy, either exercising, doing work. Mm-hmm. What's your go-to? Well, I know carbs uh, kill me. So <laughs> after I eat a pasta or you know pizza, uh, I need a nap as well. Um, so I would say probably more fiber, uh, you know, like vegetables. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, give me a lot of energy. Uh, You're health yeah, conscious, yeah. I will say. So <laughs> good New Year's resolutions from that side. <laughs> Great, great. I, gotta, I gotta continue that trend. Uh, well, I mean, I'm gonna give the the obvious answer of, of coffee is 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 an absolute necessity to to get the brain cells firing. So yeah, it's the the fuel of of my work anyway. And I, I often say in the office, the real boss is the coffee machine. And if it decided to to uh, to not show up for work, we'd all be in trouble. So. What's the best coffee place in Brussels then to, uh, to our viewers? Uh, there's a listeners. place that I like that's that's in Saint-Gilles called Stella, uh, mm. which is uh, excellent coffee. Give them a shout out. Yeah, there we go. I will say for my answer, last summer I made a smart choice and decided to bike to Antwerp in one day and back, which uh, I survived, hence why I'm sitting here. But I survived <laughs> thanks to the fact that I stumbled into a gas station at like 5.58, two minutes before it was closing, and bought a one euro banana and that changed my day. I, it, it boosted me up. I never knew they had that in them. So uh, I will say that's a miracle food in case I'm ever stuck in a desert and dying again. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, uh, Connell, Giovanni. Is there anywhere people can look for if they want to find more of your work, more of your research, more of your writing, your ideas? Yeah, I would say the obvious place would be Bruegel's website uh, is uh, org. Uh, and um, yeah, but if you want to shoot us a message on LinkedIn, uh, feel free, absolutely. Yeah, LinkedIn, Twitter, and and any of the work that we, we put out on the Bruegel website. Perfect. Well, those links should be in the description below then. And uh, thanks again for coming on. I hope you're going to have an energized week. Uh, <laughs> open the pipes of knowledge. I, I'm using all my metaphors again. I should have <laughs> came up with new ones. But uh, well, no, thanks for the invite. Um, yeah, it was yeah, good thank to speak you. to you. No worries. Till next time, everybody. Then. Bye. Bye, Bye-bye. everyone. <laughs>